Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about the 1964 film Beckett with Ben Paul. Welcome. Hi. Why did you want to come on this podcast, and why did you especially want to talk about this movie? Uh, well, I've been listening to the podcast since it started. I really enjoyed it. To be honest, I thought not many people would have picked this movie. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it's important to me. When Peter O'Toole passed away a few years yeah. ago, I realized I'd only seen him in Lawrence. Oh. And so I picked a film off the list and I loved it. Besides that, I lived in Canterbury for a couple of years. Oh, okay. I actually was in Canterbury relatively recently. Yeah, okay. It's a pretty beautiful city, although I haven't been there about 20 years. Yeah, no, beautiful city, beautiful cathedral. Oh, amazing. Yeah. The best. I've actually loved this movie for a long time. This is one of the movies that I saw when I was first getting really into medieval history. And loved and found it so fascinating that Peter O'Toole plays the young Henry II in this and then the older Henry II in Lion in Winter, which uh, have you seen that? I haven't yet. No, I'm going to when uh, your podcast is out. Yeah, so I highly recommend it. And yes, for a peek behind the curtains, I actually recorded a Lion in Winter episode and then said, you know, I really want to do a Beckett episode and release that first. So this is being released first, but recorded second. Awesome. Yeah. So Beckett, of course, as we've already touched on, stars Peter O'Toole as King Henry II. And Richard Burden as Thomas Beckett. And fun fact, they were both nominated for Best Actor for this film, which I for uh, for Oscars, which I don't think is very common that there are two people who both get nominated for lead actor or actress in a particular movie. Yeah. Uh, however, yeah, yeah, they both lost to Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's more of an Oscar-y movie, I think. Oh, they're all pretty Oscar-y. Uh, this seems like I, I was kind of surprised in some ways uh, that, I know, yeah. but I wonder if it's almost that the fact that there were two of them, they couldn't choose between them. They probably split the vote. Exactly. <laughs> you know the story. Uh, so then it has John Gilgood as, as Louis VII of France, Martita Hunt as Matilda, Pamela Brown as Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Woo! yes, I'm my absolute favorite. <laughs> I will be honest, I do not know any of those actors in particular because I know nothing right. about film in the 1960s, mm-hmm. to be honest. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing about that is it's like a who's who of British stage and screen mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, lots of up-and-coming people who I'm sure you're going to mention. And uh, yeah, it's just a fantastic cast. In a movie that's occasionally quite dodgy. Yeah, and the so the one other person that I in particular what definitely wanted to highlight was uh, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, which I feel very bad about. But Sian mm-hmm. Phillips. Ah, Sean. Sean. Okay, yes, thank you yeah, for yeah. your Welsh. Uh, All right. <laughs> but uh, Sean Phillips as Gwendolyn, who. 
I looked at her and I was like, who is she? She looks so familiar and realized she was Livia in I, Claudius, which is a series oh, I hell absolutely yeah. adore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, Derek Jacobi, who was Claudius in I, Claudius, was also involved uh, with Beckett down the line. Wait, really? Who was he? When? Well, no, he's not in the movie. It was also a play. Oh, okay. He had later Beckett. And he had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Brother Cadfell is uh, just a little bit ahead of it in time. So, and that's the yeah, yeah, totally. Jacobi's role. Super cool. Yeah. And on the subject of I, Claudius, Peter O'Toole in this reminded me sometimes of John Hurt in I, Claudius as yes, Caligula. That kind of yeah. slightly unhinged royal <laughs> yeah. persona that he's very much going for here. Yeah. But we'll get into it. Yeah. <laughs> So in our first main section, Enumeratio, the recap section, I'm going to start with just a very brief recap to kind of orient us, and then we'll move into some more general discussion of the film. King Henry II of England so appreciates the loyalty and love of his drinking buddy and confidant Thomas Becket that he names him first royal chancellor. When the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, Henry thinks the solution to ending his constant conflict with the church is appointing Becket as his new archbishop. Quickly, however, Becket fails to be the yes-man Henry expected as he sides with church rather than king. He temporarily flees to France to escape Henry's wrath, but returns under an uneasy truce. Still resentful, however, Henry utters the famous line, Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Before four of his his knights, who promptly ride to Canterbury and murder Becket. Henry accepts a semi-public whipping as a punishment and publicly proclaims his acceptance of Becket as a saint. I also wanted to start with sharing a couple of the taglines because they are just delightfully dramatic in a way that I think a lot of films coming out now do not do this Mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. So an age of rampant lusts, abandon, runaway passions, an age brought bristling to life by two of the most exciting stars of our time. And then if you really want some good alliteration, a taste for wine and women made them friends. A sudden clash made them man and martyr, which led to murder. I mean, they're not wrong. Oh, no, they're, uh, (laughs) they definitely, I would say, really express the drama of the film, as I said, in a way that I feel like you don't have such entertaining taglines anymore. Totally, totally. And um, when you mentioned drama there, it started out as a play. Yes. Which is pretty easy to tell when you're watching it. It's these long sections in one room with a few people walking in and out. Uh, it was written in by Jean Anouy. I don't know if I'm getting that right. And staged in Paris in 1959. When it moved to the West End of London, Peter O'Toole was supposed to be in the play. Oh. But he was picked up for a little indie movie called Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and had to, you know, go to Africa or wherever they filmed that. And so he was replaced by Christopher Plummer. Oh, huh. Who most recently replaced another actor in a movie for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like I said before, it's a real who's who after that. Uh, Derek Jacobi was in one version of it, Laurence Olivier, Anthony Quinn, Diana Rigg, who we'll mm-hmm. remember from Game of Thrones, Ian Holm, who went on to be an alien and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Laurence of Arabia, of course, was a gigantic hit. Right. One of the greatest movies of all time, probably. Uh, my parents' first date. Really? Was revived. Yeah. <laughs> Is that why you made sure to get a chance to see it, uh, Lawrence of Arabia? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was important to me. And so after Lawrence, Peter O'Toole was kind of at the height of his powers. Mm-hmm. And when he was later interviewed as an old man about this movie and asked why he wanted this part as Beckett, 
he said that's like asking the cat why it wants that mouse, <laughs> which is, uh, I think, was a lovely line. Yeah, definitely. He dyed his hair for this role as well because he didn't just want to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pretty boy. Hmm. He's a he's the brunette pretty boy. Yeah, incredibly <laughs> pretty in this movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is definitely, I think you can see watching it, the way in which it definitely is adapted from a play. And Lion in Winter actually has some similar qualities in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also, yeah. much like Lion in Winter, has some very dramatic Latin opening music. Oh, yeah. Yes, as well as a title card, which then sets us in time, in fact, going a bit back in time, and uh, informs us that in the year 1066, William the Conqueror crossed from France with his Norman army and conquered the Saxons of Britain at the Battle of Hastings. Henry II, his great-grandson, continued to rule over the oppressed Saxon peasants, backed by the swords of his barons and by the power of his imported Norman clergy. And this begins mm-hmm. this movie being very invested in centering the Norman-Saxon divide as being yeah. at the root of this conflict, which is an interesting choice. And I'll talk more about the Saxon thing later. Totally. Yeah. It's very interesting angle. Yeah. It's a very interesting angle. And uh, I guess I will just have a, one quick note about the accuracy of this now, which is that Beckett actually isn't a Saxon, but that there was a <laughs> earlier theory that proposed that he was. And the playwright mm-hmm. read that and thought it was really interesting. And then by the time he found out it was wrong, basically decided it made the story so striking yeah. that he stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, it's it's interesting to me not to be too political about it, but it kind of parallels the relationship at the time between the English and the Irish. Right. Um, and antagonistic English and Irish history. The antagonism obviously coming more from my side, if you like. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I thought that was an interesting movie for the times. And yeah, I don't know, just a thought that popped into my head. Yeah, definitely. That it, it very much, I think, is taking off on, in a lot of ways, Britain's mm-hmm. later relationship with, uh, with a lot of yeah. different peoples, in fact. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> The film opens at the end of the story and then goes backward. And so it begins with Henry wearing this very dramatic looking red cloak, going up to Beckett's tomb and removes his crown and his cloak and his shirt, and then kneels before the tomb and gives this very striking soliloquy as an opener, which is kind of reflecting back upon his relationship with Beckett. Mm -hmm. It's interesting as a kind of way to orient us and in particular to really highlight the intensity of the relationship Mm -hmm. between the two of them, which going forward really is so striking and something that both, you know, other characters remark on as well, that Mm -hmm. it is very much in some ways has the tenor of a romantic relationship. Yeah, absolutely. These guys, they, well, especially Henry, he kind of lives for the drama. Yes. (laughs) And uh, he's, he's, uh, he's really into it. Yeah. What surprised me in this scene and distracted me for a moment is that the music, the choral music in the cathedral, is the same as the opening to The Shining. Oh, wow. Except... I didn't notice that. It's been a long time since I watched The Shining. <laughs> in The Shining, it's played on a synthesizer. But <laughs> yeah, that kind here. of took me out of the movie for a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so odd. Yeah. And the cathedral set, by the way, the cathedral set at the time was the largest internal set ever built. Oh, okay. Because I I was noticing looking at it that 
it did, there were things that I was looking at that I was like, that looks familiar. That actually looks a decent amount like Canterbury, but yeah, that yeah. I checked and they did not in fact film there, which I understand yeah. that they would not want to shut down operations <laughs> at Canterbury Cathedral for this movie. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a pretty impressive set. Yeah, yeah, huge. I mean, it blows me away that had Cleopatra been made by then? I'm not sure, but it's, yeah, at the time, the biggest ever. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, as Henry concludes his uh, soliloquy and reflection on his relationship, he ends by talking about how back in the happy times, they, you know, used to go out drinking and wenching and that Beckett was even better at that than he was. And then mm-hmm. we move into some comedic womanizing. <laughs> Yeah. Which is, I like to at least hope, maybe a choice that they wouldn't have made now if making this film. Maybe not. To be honest, I think uh, they just let the documentary characters film Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton in real life. That's definitely not possible. Um, <laughs> okay. Because uh, using the term wenching, they were definitely drinkers and wenchers. And so this is probably what audiences expected to see up front. Right. So that's very much what you see is uh, them kind of climbing out of the window of some woman's house, mm-hmm. just right off the bat, going to indicate that I'm kind of watching this and thinking, that's kind of shitty, because they're going to get off with zero consequences. And even if they'd stayed, they would have gotten off with zero consequences, because they're the king and yeah. the king's best friend. And meanwhile, yeah. this woman, God knows what's going to happen to her. <laughs> right, absolutely. And you mentioned he's the king. Uh, Henry II in this movie says, I'm the king approximately 3,000 times. Oh my God, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he is very into that fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, he had a complicated journey to becoming king. I get it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some genealogy nonsense going on there. Yep, but, he, uh, uh, he was uh, making the most of it, let's say. Yes. So Mm -hmm. this was the first of many hashtag let him dies for me as they're (laughs) ditching this woman. Yeah. I will say do right off the bat, I appreciate that they take a bath because you almost never see people bathing in medieval movies. And so I I appreciate that they acknowledge that medieval people bathed. Yeah. I love the line uh, he says to his servant, rub harder, pig. That's one of the first things you hear him say. Yep, so you're really getting the sense of Henry II as a man who is uh, not too nice to those who are less privileged than he is, who is pretty much everybody. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, the type still exists in the UK, so I know exactly who he's playing. Oh, they're here too. (laughs) (laughs) So he is not an especially charming figure. Right. There's a very heavy emphasis, I would say, placed already on Thomas's Saxon ancestry and then his perhaps uh, unsuccessful efforts to blend honor and collaboration. And this is going to be mm-hmm. a theme for the first kind of half of the film until he transitions to churchiness. Yeah, I think, to be honest, the most interesting part of the film. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see Henry introduce the fork to Henry's court, which he describes <laughs> as refined, subtle and very un-Norman. Yeah. And uh, then see Henry with Beckett as his side uh, in the midst of his battle with the church. So part of this is, yeah. This scene is just, uh, O'Toole is on fire. Yes. A A lesser actor would just be so unlikable, you'd want to switch it off, but he's just magnetic. Yeah, and the dialogue is really fabulous, I think, in this scene. Mm-hmm. It really mm-hmm. highlights his his quick wit, which I think really is accurate to the figure as well. 
and mm-hmm. uh, his, you know, kind of nasty snarkiness. But yes, but I that I think he would be irredeemably unlikable mm-hmm. without with <laughs> yeah. an actor in the hands of an actor who is less charming than Peter O'Toole. Yeah. So uh, there are a number of jurisdictional issues about uh, trying um, ecclesiastics and ecclesiastical courts as opposed to secular ones. And also Henry's big right now on these efforts to tax the church in order to hire some mercenaries. Mm-hmm. He highlights that, you know, those the clerics you fought back in the days of William the Conqueror when there was booty to be had. And now that you think you're not going to get anything out of it, now you're all of a sudden, oh, no, I couldn't possibly fight and maintain <laughs> men at arms. That's not in keeping with the mission of the church. Yeah. Yeah, he also comes out with the line, no one ever paid the Swiss with principles. Yes. <laughs> I'd be interested to know if that stereotype of the Swiss really goes back that far, but it's a beautiful line. It's a fun one that uh, I'll just kind of quickly say it now because it was something that I kind of did a little research on, okay. but then ended up not planning on especially highlighting later, which was just mm-hmm. that the Swiss are actually known as mercenaries who very much were you know, concerned about getting paid, but not until I think about the 15th century. Oh, okay. Is that where the Swiss Guard comes from at the Vatican? I believe so, yes, that they kind of started out as these uh, Swiss mercenaries who are also being hired, but they were a really big deal in the Hundred Years' War. Oh, cool. You see, I'm learning on my feet. Sorry if I spoil the latest stuff. Uh, No problem. So uh, he then in the process of this, uh, he's kind of chatting with Beckett. The church then also is very invested in presenting Beckett as this traitor to, in this case, the church. And at which point uh, Henry goes, I'd forgotten you were an archbishop, you're an archdeacon. And uh, Beckett goes, so had I, your grace. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that was possible to forget you, you had this rank? Or did you have to be a holy man? I don't think you could entirely forget that you had the rank of archdeacon. Um, I think that you would be aware, not in the sense that you would be so holy about it, but in the sense that you would say, have it in the back of your mind as something to make sure to keep in to, you know, keep as a strategy in case, say, you decided you wanted to be tried in an ecclesiastical court instead of a secular one. (laughs) Yeah, nice. I guess um, Burton's just deadpanning it to such an extent that the sarcasm is kind of really really subtle there yeah absolutely and uh, yeah so he's definitely it's like a good kind of deadpan sarcasm but Mm -hmm. I think it's you know it definitely reflects the fact that being an archdeacon is not a meaningful part of his life at this point in time Uh, Henry also just has a snack brought in while he's in the middle of this conversation and something about the obviously anachronistic word snack I feel like really works here in terms of just expressing his utter disdain for brought in by I think four heavily armed guards yes <laughs> it's a, quite a solid power move yeah so with Henry having had his snack he and Beckett set off for a hunt and promptly find a new woman to sexually harass oh boy Hashtag um, I'd like to guy. say that like uh, up to this point I was enjoying the next the the movie so much, and in this scene, I kind of crashed back down to earth, and they had to win me round again. But yeah, yeah, this is yeah. an element of the movie that, to be honest, I actually hadn't remembered from when I last saw mm. it, which must have been at this point fifteen or so years ago. And well, the world's changed. Yeah, a lot's changed. Yeah. I'm certainly, I think, more thoughtful about that sort of yes. thing now. But it definitely took me out of the film a lot more. Mm-hmm. And also made these characters so much less likable to me in a movie that Absolutely. in my head was very much about the kind of chara- these kind of charismatic and in mm-hmm. some ways 
obviously terrible, but also in some ways likable figures. Yeah. I think the movie isn't telling you to be on side with these guys, but it's kind of saying, oh, boys will be boys. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of that where it's a little lighthearted at times about Mm. their actions. Yeah, that's not okay. Yeah. So this is also the scene where they repeatedly call her it, which is especially charming, and suggest that she would be better off if she were brought back to the palace as a whore. Uh, Thomas, however, in showing some mild Saxon solidarity, basically kind of indicates like, all right, I'm going to claim her for myself. And by doing that, I'm going to make sure she's not actually taken to the palace. Mm-hmm. Um, also in this scene, there's uh, the kind of knife fight that you see in 60s movies that I think was the same knife fight in every movie where <laughs> people grab a wrist and they kind of swing from side to side for a couple of minutes, <laughs> which is fun. And uh, the same kind of horseback music that you get in medieval movies of this period which is very jaunty and upbeat and uh enjoyable yes the kind of oh somebody's on a horse (laughs) 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 and it's like this holy grail that definitely kind of spoofs that and the uh the moment where Uh it obviously turns out they're not really on a horse (laughs) (laughs) totally yeah Henry then gets Becca to promise him that he will return the favor equally which clearly isn't going to turn out well Yowza. And the specific way in which that does not turn out well is that it turns out that Beckett has a Welsh girlfriend, Gwendolyn, and Mm -hmm. uh, she is sprawling in front of some paintings that I will say are definitely Renaissance. A lot of the visuals (laughs) of this movie felt actually pretty close to me, but every now and then there were just kind of bits of the background where I was like, "Mm, not so much. Uh, Yeah, okay. (laughs) You know, medieval times. Yes. So Henry, (laughs) entirely unsurprisingly, demands Gwendolyn as his favor. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, another kind of hashtag let him die here for Henry in treating this woman as an object. Mm -hmm. And then Beckett arguably is worse for, first of all, agreeing to let his friend rape his girlfriend and then informing her when she asks, will you take me back tomorrow if Henry's done with me? And he says no. Yeah. Yeah. After that, he kind of monologues to himself about what if one day Beckett should meet his honor in truth. Yes. Saying, you know, when am I going to rise to the occasion? And at this point, I just kind of thought, well, you've kind of missed your opportunity there and you're never going to get it back by our right. standards. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, it's it's a movie of its time. Yes. Yeah. And presents then, oddly, his honor eventually as being restored by his support of the church, which is interesting because uh, the church is presented as being, in some ways, the kind of bride of male clerics, that <laughs> there is this kind of image. And so it's, you know, oh, replacing the honor of the church with the honor of, or, you know, basic respect for human mm-hmm. decency of these various women. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, no, yeah. But the church isn't a real human woman, so. <laughs> no, it doesn't count. But they probably thought it was more important. Yeah, yeah, probably. So Gwendolyn then kills herself. Mm. And Henry then makes this all about him because he's (laughs) scared of all the blood and needs to cuddle in bed with Beckett. Am I allowed to say that Henry II is a messy bitch? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So dramatic. Get out, I'm sleeping here tonight. (laughs) Right, the the blonde girl shows up for being going to kick the rest (laughs) I don't want to be alone. It's like, you've got a wife, dude. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. 
Disappointing all around. Yeah, so thus far we're not doing, we do ultimately pass the if-decker test, but at the moment we're not doing great on it. I was concerned about the if-decker test at this point. And actually, Um, I do have hmm. actually some questions about it later on. It might, it, it might pass. Okay. I will also say, um, well, it's probably your place to say naturally, but on the subject of the Bechdel test, yes, uh, this movie fails it. I think. Yes, there are. But because yeah, yeah, because the relationship of the two central characters is so central to the plot, it's kind of impossible to go around. Right. So I don't know what. Yeah, it's the kind of movie where I don't necessarily fault it for not passing the Bechdel test, and Mm -hmm. I think that there are things that they could have done differently that would have made it still a movie that did well on gender regardless. It did mm. not do those things. I do not no. consider this movie overall as doing a great job on gender. <laughs> no, I think we can uh, uh, black mark that. Yeah. So yeah. certainly as has been indicated thus far. Mm-hmm. At this point, uh, Henry and Beckett go off to France for a war dealing with some rebellion in one of Henry's various French domains that he has at this point. The barons mm-hmm. spend a lot of time bitching at Beckett for having negotiated a truce instead of allowing them to kill people. Mm-hmm. There's a line here, a piece of dialogue. A baron says, what of England's pride? And Beckett responds, England's pride is to succeed. Mm. And um, lesson learned there because the British would never again engage themselves in a project that was sure to fail. <laughs> Which also kind of brings up other ways in which this is perhaps very much a movie of its time, which is reflecting ideas perhaps from the 60s (laughs) about the subsequent history of Britain. Yeah, um, ideas about Englishness and what English people are driven by are still somewhat surprisingly current. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. While they are in France, there is a Saxon monk. I'm a little unclear as to how this gentleman made it to France if he stowed away with the <laughs> army or what what the deal is in terms of how he ended up getting there. But he mm-hmm. seems to have made it over there and attempts to assassinate Beckett as a collaborator. And I do want to note that this word collaborator, which I think is a somewhat, you know, a quite a somewhat modernizing choice. Yes. is used quite frequently as uh, a kind of highlighting Beckett essentially as being like a race traitor. Yeah, yeah. And um, it would have had added resonance for the generation that were children during the war and mm-hmm. had experienced all of that stuff. So it was a very, it would have just chimed with audiences immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And to hell with the accuracy. Yeah. Which is in some ways, I definitely think an understandable choice for films. Yeah. There is this assassination attempt. Uh, Beckett comments, uh, your knife stinks of onions like every proper little Saxon's knife, which I think is a kind of interesting line <laughs> and very much highlights, I would say at this point, that the big distinction and the way in which Beckett sees himself is now in many ways different at this moment from the Saxons really has a lot to do with class. Yeah. Yeah, sure. A real uh, peasant food, I guess, would be, yeah, slicing up some onions. Yeah. Well, and also that the same mm-hmm. knife that you would use to assassinate somebody would be the knife that, you know, you use to cut up an onion. <laughs> yeah. You only have one knife and maybe you don't wash it that often. Yeah, you know, Saxons, they skimp on knives. Yep. <laughs> so Beckett then goes to chat with Henry about the church. Uh, Henry is fucking some French girl, as always. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> And uh, he warns Henry that in five years' time, there will be two kings of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury and you. And in ten years, there will be only one. So Henry mm. goes, and it won't be me, will it? Mm-hmm. Um, were there any instances of kind of Archbishop kings or pretenders? 
Or maybe oh, we can come no. to that later. No. <laughs> it's, no. Uh, yeah, because I'd never even heard this idea before. It was, it, I don't know. It's him making a political point. There's um, this really interesting effort made in a lot of medieval and early modern films to present mm-hmm. the church as actively trying to take over the state. Yeah. Which is not actually at the root of the church-state conflict. The root of the church-state conflict is very much about mm-hmm. things like who has jurisdiction over certain areas and yes. does the king have the right to tax the church and what does that look like? Yes. And does the king get to decide who the bishop is as opposed to the church? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things like um, I think the also the point of it being an, uh, an English movie and uh, well, a European play is that the Reformation would have been very much in mind. And the revelation, yes. uh, the um, Reformation is still very much a lingering thing in uh, European consciousness. Yeah, and very much something also, and I'll, this is something I'll talk about in a little more detail in a later section, but mm-hmm. very much also important in terms of how the story of Beckett then gets remembered in the English context. Mm-hmm. So uh, Henry dismisses the uh, young French lady with, uh, I'm thinking of priests now, not you, go away. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Nice final line. Nice, nice. This conversation between Henry and Beckett sets the scene for Henry being very worried about the fact that he has this essentially, as it's posited, alternate king in the person of the Archbishop of Canterbury in particular. Mm -hmm. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury conveniently dies. Mm -hmm. At which point he comes up with the idea, which he refers to as brilliant and profound and subtle, Mm -hmm. of making Thomas the new Archbishop. Yeah, and he probably says, I'm the king, at some point in this conversation. It says, I'm the king. I'm brilliant. (laughs) How how did I not think of this before? (laughs) Thomas, meanwhile, basically tells him, please don't do this. And he goes, oh, be fine, be great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a great line here as well, very relevant to the English situation, where Henry II says, why must you spoil all my illusions? And Beckett responds, because you should have none. Yes. Which is a fantastic line, I think. Absolutely. And also, I think, really gets at their very different ideas about kingship in some ways. Mm-hmm. That Beckett, I think, had he remained an advisor to the king, would in some ways have been quite a good one, especially in this particular portrayal of Henry as somebody to perhaps temper some of his kind of less intelligent decision making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, illusions, of course, have no place in British decision making. <laughs> 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 What is the EU? What is Brexit? Well, what is the church in this movie in the EU today? Yes. (laughs) This is also definitely the moment where I started thinking, it really is unfortunate that he doesn't have his wife here to tell him he's being a fucking idiot, that that was also true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she crops up later to tell him that plenty, and it's a great pleasure to see. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Beckett, now about to be Archbishop, already begins to behave rather differently from how we've seen him behaving thus far, and in particular begins to give away all of his worldly possessions. We see him kind of handing over some cloaks to the poor and things mm-hmm. along those lines, which the uh, the Archbishop of York is actually a bit snarky about. Yeah, he's all about that ascetic life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, in fact, most of the bishops of his time are not, so. Mm. Yeah. And finally, we have some women to appear to tell Henry that he's an idiot. <laughs> so these women are Henry's mother, Matilda, 
who is a really fascinating figure who I'll say a little bit more later about, and his wife, Eleanor, who is also very much a fascinating figure. Mm -hmm. The reason that I am questioning whether this movie ultimately passes the Ifdecker test is that I am not sure that anyone ever says their names. Oh, no, uh, because I'm pretty sure, because at one point I thought, oh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, that's like Sarah's favorite. Or that's also famously the million dollar question on uh, who wants to be a millionaire one year. (laughs) So that's how everyone in the UK knows it. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, uh, maybe it's mentioned. I don't know. I'd have to go back. Because this occurred to me belatedly, because this has been an issue with me before, is that Mm -hmm. I tend to just assume that women have names that are mentioned if they're people who are famous and I've heard of them, Mm -hmm. because I know their names. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure he certainly, when they're talking to one another, I, you know, he does not refer to his mother as anything but mother, and there really aren't that many exchanges in which Eleanor actually addresses Matilda directly or vice versa. Right. Okay, that's interesting. And Henry, in a lot of the lines that I can recall at least, kind of calls Eleanor a wife. <laughs> <laughs> like Hermes from Futurama. Right, exactly. <laughs> Woman. <laughs> So I would have to double check and go back, but it is questionable, I would say, whether these count in the context of the film as named women, given that they only have names if you're looking at the credits slash know from external knowledge who they are. Absolutely. A word about headdresses? Yes. (laughs) The headdresses. That's it. Oh, they are fabulous. I didn't actually quite look up whether they were exactly right for the time, but they right. were into they were into elaborate headdresses, certainly. Yeah, so no doubt. I appreciated the elaborateness. They were definitely appropriate for the Phantom Menace or something. <laughs> right, it's kind of future uh, Padma Amidala. <laughs> the children are also in full hostile form. He asks one of his sons, uh, "Which one are you?" And he responds, <laughs> "Henry the Third. He is not yet. <laughs> I'm surprised as well. They don't do the full tour of all the sons. It doesn't pander to the audience in this way. So you don't get, I'm Richard. Some people call me the Lionheart and this kind of thing that a modern movie might do. But this movie kind of assumes that my parents' generation, for example, would know, oh, that must be the young king and Richard and John and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that it doesn't do that, which I also would wonder if... I wonder if this film actually came out after Lion and Winter. Right. If they might have done that more because there is then such an emphasis on the personalities of the sons. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I need to see it. But at this, I mean, because at that point also they're older. And at this point they are relatively young. I mean, Henry, Henry the Young King is the oldest. And mm-hmm. he is, I believe, uh, when Beckett gets consecrated, he is still only maybe in his early teens. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is this the scene also with the widow line? Yes. <laughs> no wonder I shun your bed. It's not amusing to make love to one's own widow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, these guys these guys are proper English lovies. Oh, yes. Yeah, so... They probably wrote that themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and referring to the fact, of course, that Eleanor is presented as seeing his death and being in support of her son's excitement about being Henry III. Right. <laughs> right. So, and, and both Eleanor and Matilda are have no illusions, unlike Henry at this point, about Beckett's appointment being a great idea. And Henry, indeed, is soon quite infuriated to find out that Beckett is taking himself seriously in his new role as Archbishop. 
and is now very concerned with preserving the honor of God rather than the honor of the king. Mm. And there's a great line surrounding Beckett returning the chancellor's ring where Mm -hmm. he says, you give the lions of England back to me like a little boy who doesn't want to play anymore. And then goes on to say, I would have gone to war with all of England's might behind you and even against England's interests to defend you, Thomas. I would have even, I would have given away my life laughingly to you for you. Only I loved you and you didn't love me. That's the difference. Yeah. Drama queen. (laughs) Totally. Uh, It's very romantic. It is. Yeah. As I said, the tenor of this really is a romantic relationship. You could imagine that exchange happening in the pouring rain or something. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Or on a fairground ride. Yeah. So there's definitely some amount of like, all right, come on, just make out already. It's fine. Totally. They're not fine in the 12th century, presumably, but but not unknown in the 12th century. And not unknown in the British theatre. No. (laughs) (laughs) Henry is attempting to be rid of Beckett initially by charging him with with embezzlement. And Beckett, meanwhile, strikes a a blow in the erstwhile war between church and state and excommunicates Lord Gilbert, a supporter of Henry and a lord who had basically taken it upon himself to execute a cleric who I think had perhaps kind of raped a young a young woman. Right. Yeah, so at least somebody cares about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm on Lord Gilbert's side. And right. uh, instead of handing him over to the ecclesiastical court, which probably would have uh, given a far less severe penalty, uh, he almost certainly would not have been executed. He was almost certainly would not have been executed. Right, or possibly excommunicated. Yes. I did some research into that as a side note, and I thought, does this communication still exist? And uh, yep, they're still doing it. And oh, for yeah. Really shitty reasons. Oh, yes. I think it comes up every now and then in the mm. US that there are threats about excommunicating Democratic politicians who uh, <laughs> vote in favor of uh, legislation that allows it, you know, abortion access, for example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really depressing stuff to read. Yep. Yeah. And excommunication is very much a big, you know, was a big political weapon of the church as well as a religious one in the Middle Ages. So Totally, totally. I don't know uh, who uses uh, this insult in the film, but I've just written in my notes, carping mediocrity. That's a nice insult. Yes, You're carping he... mediocrity. Yes. So that's mm. uh, Henry's conversation that he has with Eleanor and Matilda and is basically okay. talking about... How little the women in his li- in his life matter to him. Right, okay. And with Eleanor, he says that you've given me nothing but carping mediocrity and that Beckett is worth a hundred of her, at which point I think I audibly said, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're good at the old uh, insult game. Yes. And, th- you know, and that snarky, nasty dynamic between the two of them is, I will yeah. also say, delightful in Lion and Winter. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember back in that first council scene with the priests, he complains about the uh, bishop's unpriestly caterwauling. Yes. And, uh, you know, they're just laying down these lines like they're not even lines. It, it's just effortless with these guys. They're so good. Yeah, and again, I think it really is something that that kind of constant parade of insults would be nowhere near as charming were it not somebody, you know, Peter O'Toole or somebody like Peter O'Toole. Totally, totally. He, at this point, starts talking about how Becca is the only one who ever loved him. He starts talking about how his mother never really loved him and, you know, never truly cared for him and went off to balls and ignored him. Mm -hmm. And I kept kind of rolling my eyes at Mm -hmm. his 
whiningness and his oh I'm learning to be alone it's like all right we all know that you're you know got a mistress at this point you're fine (laughs) okay leave this guy alone for five minutes and see what happens right right Becca then flees to France, uh, where we have, I guess we had first to first see Louis, a uh, uh, King Louis, or sorry, King Louis the Seventh mm. of France, who mm-hmm. is, uh, I guess I would say, failing to receive the English ambassadors. Mm-hmm. He is in the midst of playing chess, and just as a nice little touch, he is playing with the uh, the Louis chess set, or a replica, obviously, mm-hmm. of the uh, the Louis chess set, a quite famous medieval chess set, which is a cool little touch. Nice. Yeah. And he's played by uh, John Gielgud. Yes. He was a giant of the stage, uh, older than these other guys. He'd been around a lot longer, and they were very, very happy to get him in the movie and uh, be able to work with him, I think. They were very flattered that he was there. Like Alan Guinness in Star Wars, you know? But different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's quite good in this role. I would say the only thing that somewhat that comes off as a little odd is the fact that he's clearly older and presented as this much more stayed established figure when mm-hmm. he's not that much older than Henry. And in fact, they had shared a wife in oh. that Eleanor of Aquitaine had previously been Louis the seventh's wife. And oh, of course. was then annulled. Mm-hmm. Oh, wild. Yeah. So <laughs> Louis is somewhat older, but they are kind of near contemporaries, I guess I would say. They're kind of, you know, more contemporaries to one another than I think this movie presents them as. Okay. He informs the English and the English that, of course, obviously Beckett's not here. No idea where he is. He certainly isn't in France. And then immediately after they go, says, "Get Beckett in here." (laughs) (laughs) It's like when Bob Hoskins hides Roger Rabbit in the sink. (laughs) Right, exactly. So he acknowledges, you know, if Becca were a French bishop, I'd throw you in prison myself. But given as you're not, helping you out is quite convenient for me. Absolutely. It's a great uh, kind of scheming performance. Yes. Mm -hmm. Beckett also has the opportunity to spend a little time with the Pope in what looks very much based on the mosaics behind them, like it is supposed to be, or at least is inspired by the city of Ravenna and the uh, the Church of San Vitale in Ravenna, which has some really fabulous mosaics. Okay. Okay. And yeah, why had the church moved there? Was that a schism or was that because... uh... The church hadn't actually moved there. The Pope should have been in Rome, but every now and then they traveled. Oh, okay. All right. Well, well, well done for noticing that. It's certainly it's certainly not impossible. It's certainly not impossible that the Pope could have been in Ravenna, and he clearly the scene. It certainly looks more like Ravenna than it looks like anything in Rome. So okay, great. I'm not uh, yeah. So I'm not sure if that's supposed to be happening, but yeah, uh, yeah. I like uh, I like these. Um, there's three priests in like red robes as Beckett enters. I think the and, cardinals. Yeah, yeah, cardinals exactly, and uh, they've got these kind of comedy Italian accents, which I really enjoy. Yeah, and the uh, the Pope kind of does too. I don't, I don't actually know any of the actors. I don't know if any of them are none of them are Italian. If any of them are Italian. Oh, okay. Uh, I'd be surprised uh, if they were because it's right. kind of Blackadder level stuff. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's lovely to see, but the languages are all over the place in this movie. The French girl speaks French. Oh yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And yeah, there's some language stuff that I'm going to comment on a bit later. In fact, totally good. The Pope is insisting at this point on the need for the church to exist peacefully within the framework of the state, which is real fucking rich because we're just out of the investiture controversy, Mm. an event which is very much about the Pope 
being embroiled in, in many ways, a similar kind of conflict mm-hmm. with the uh, with the Holy Roman Emperor. Okay, okay. I'd like to hear more about that. So at this point, I will say that really the kind of only way in which the popes think that they should be existing peacefully within the framework of the state is with the states basically doing what they want to do, what they want them to do. Right, okay. I can see the conflict there. Yeah, so, you know, this is, as I said, really just about kind of a century after this kind of very dramatic moment of, you know, really real hostility between Pope Gregory VII and uh, uh, Emperor Henry IV, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, yeah. Which also involved the king in the or the emperor in the end doing some rather dramatic public penance okay involving he basically realized that it ended up kind of erupting into an actual military conflict oh okay and then at the end at some point henry was losing Mm -hmm. and realized basically that since he was losing he needed to kind of make amends because he of course had been excommunicated and goes like crawling on the snow like in the snow on his knees uh, to mm. uh, uh the kind of castle at Canosa where the pope is currently residing. Right, okay. Yeah, another guy who lives for the drama. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I'm not sure they were ever quite as buddies as uh, Henry and Beckett, but I think you could make a movie that is in some ways kind of similar with that kind of level of dramatic conflict. Yeah, yeah. Kind of Viggo Mortensen would completely be up for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be good. (laughs) Henry and Beckett have a tense reconciliation in which Beckett asks after young Henry, at which point Henry responds, he's an idiot and sly like his mother. (laughs) Seems a bit unfair. Parents. Yeah. Henry complains of the cold and describes him and Beckett as two frozen statues trying to make their peace in a frozen eternity. Mm. Which is a rather beautiful line in its way. It is, yeah. And to be honest, it's uh, one of those images that stuck around. Uh, at least when I was a kid, I had a Catholic education, primary and middle. Mm-hmm. And so they always talked a lot about Thomas Beckett, Thomas a Beckett. To, yes. And yeah, I guess that line is very accurate because this conflict is frozen in time and it does have these Shakespearean qualities and this very dramatic aspect and you know, state versus church. It's got everything, of the, all of that English stuff, basically, is baked into it. And you learn about yeah. it from a very young age. Yeah, which is interesting that, of course, that is the perspective that a lot of people would have had watching this film, which is very much not the perspective that Americans have. Right. Because we don't learn anything. Right. So this isn't a well-known story in the States. Oh, no, absolutely not. It's okay. the kind of thing that I would say... If you're some the kind of person who finds medieval history at all interesting, you'd probably come across it at this point, honestly, in part because of this film. Right. And I think certainly, you know, people who tend to be interested in the Middle Ages, often England is kind of their gateway in a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. because there is that, you know, for some some amount of familiarity with, uh, with that English context slightly more than other locations, at least. Yeah. Of course, they get you very interested in Thomas Beckett by showing you the cool, gory pictures of him being murdered. Spoiler. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to let him die works out. <laughs> but in the United States, you really do very little medieval history on an official level in terms of your schooling. Right, sure. That we're very heavy on U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you're heavy on English history. We just have less American history for us sure, to sure. spend all this time on. <laughs> I get, yeah, yeah, it makes sense that he's not well known. That is something I intended to ask. 
Yeah, so definitely the story would not be as familiar with American audiences. And mm-hmm. also, I will say that church-state conflict would have a slightly different resonance in the United States. Oh, for sure. No doubt. And yeah, Henry decides to formally crown his son, basically just to annoy Becket by having the Archbishop of York doing it, whereas crowning the king is typically the privilege of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm -hmm. And this, by the way, is a decision that Henry did in fact make, which had a lot of additional repercussions that did not work out super well for him. (laughs) Really sad and uh, kind of pathetic repercussions. Oh, yes. And it just shows what you do, uh, you know, when you embark on a project designed to just anger your political enemies. It's always just kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Oh, yeah, and the amount of pettiness. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to go well for you. Oh, man. And I do appreciate that, once again, Matilda and Eleanor function almost as essentially this chorus (laughs) telling Henry what we as the audience already know, especially because we know how it all worked out, that basically he's an idiot. Yeah. And I think one of the lines is, for all our sakes, think of England and not your disappointed love for this man. Uh, One of them tells him that you have an obsession about him, which is unhealthy and unnatural. Mm-hmm. and even points out that if Thomas Beckett were a faithless woman, you'd treat him no differently. Absolutely. That's what we've been saying, right? Yeah. Oh, that's very he, much then articulated he probably by would, the women. Yeah, he probably uh, would treat a woman differently, to be honest, <laughs> and uh, differently. He would have had her murdered at this point. He would yeah. have her murdered faster. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it would be done. Um, yeah. There's a couple of um, great insult lines from O'Toole here again. He says to his son, uh, stop dribbling while I raise you to glory. <laughs> and uh, calls him a witless baboon, which um, mm. struck me because I don't know how well-known baboons were at the time. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I can't. There certainly, I don't think, are baboons in Europe. <laughs> right. No, no, no way. There are baboons in places where at least they would have known existed, but I'd have to double check my medieval bestiaries to see if baboons are something that would appear in them. Well, maybe the King of France had one. I mean, there was a a line earlier in the King of France scene. His closing line actually is, now come and see my aviary. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And English monarchs do definitely have little zoos at various points. Uh, As I said, this isn't something that I double-checked all of the details on, but Mm. the Tower of London actually for a while held the English king's menagerie, which included included lions and actually did at some point include some form of ape, although I am not sure specifically what kind. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or exactly what year that was. That might be tricky to find out without a skeleton because they would have just said ape or monkey or something like this. But yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, it would be it'd be interesting because yeah, they do have and they do have some of the records, I think, from this okay. uh, this menagerie. Yeah. And uh, I think also another great insult is that so uh, Matilda says, Oh, if I were a man, and then Henry responds, Thank God he gave you breasts, an asset from which I derive not the least benefit. Uh, because he was nursed by a peasant woman. Yes, that he uh, kind of yeah takes pains to comment on the fact that you know you didn't bother nursing me yourself. You handed me off to this peasant wet nurse, and I think she also then kind of indicates like, oh no wonder you turned out so badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people are still having this argument with their parents. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> and people did work. I did kind of wonder like, well, the wet nursing is a good idea for a number of reasons uh-huh. in terms of you know especially for wealthy women and especially if they want to have other children. Yeah. But there's this idea like, well, but on the other hand, there might be qualities in your mother's milk that would be imparted from them that would be beneficial. Yeah. That instead they're getting this, you know, lowly peasant woman's milk. Yeah, it would have been quite a mysterious thing. 
And plus, like women like Matilda and Eleanor of Aquitaine maybe did it for, you know, convenience reasons, but also they were basically running kingdoms and empires and stuff behind the scenes and they were busy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So Henry then surrounded by four loyal knights, one of whom he literally is kind of like stroking on the head. (laughs) The guy looks like he's like almost about to like start purring. It's a very weird scene. (laughs) Interestingly, so Thomas Beckett was kind of described as being analogous for Henry to a faithless woman in the earlier scene. And here Henry says, I'm as useless as a woman. So long as he's alive, I tremble, I shake. Mm-hmm. His heart starts racing. This is where it gets a bit yes. hammy. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then finally, muses aloud, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Yeah. Which, unsurprisingly, the knights take as a hint. Mm-hmm. So in Canterbury, Thomas hears that armed men have arrived, but insists on continuing to celebrate Mass and that we will not lock the doors because you never lock the doors during Mass, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, begins to continue, begins with the service. Mm-hmm. And of course, they come in and stab him at the altar. Yeah, and I will say, like, this is really good filmmaking, this scene. There's a genuine sense of creeping dread at what you know is coming. Like yes. uh, when you watch a good historical movie, it's a good one if you're tense, even though you know, for example, that the Titanic's going to sink. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I think it does a really good job of using its reader, its or readers, its uh, watchers' expectations mm-hmm. in that regard, yeah. and uh, using that to its benefit, as opposed to you know a kind of odd like, well, everyone knows what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Beckett dies. Uh, the fake blood is. Not fantastic, but it is otherwise some great filmmaking. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And we transition directly, I believe, and this is a kind of interesting uh, shot or kind of transition, is that we transition directly from seeing Beckett's bleeding corpse mm-hmm. into seeing Henry being whipped and with his own blood being in turn drawn. Yes, indeed. And I think uh, maybe audiences in the 60s had something for seeing Peter O'Toole being whipped. <laughs> because, of course, there's also the scene in Lawrence. And right. I don't know, maybe he had something to get out of the system. Am I making this up, or is there a movie where he plays Jesus, where he gets whipped? Peter O'Toole, Jesus. It doesn't ring a bell, but you could be right. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Maybe I just feel that he should have played Jesus. Yeah, he worked a lot. <laughs> he took a lot of paychecks, I'll say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he, he seems like he could pull off Jesus also. <laughs> So uh, Henry, at this point, kind of vaguely as he gets up, refers to the fact that he will seek out Beckett's murderers, that his justice will find them, uh, knowing full well that they're standing next to him. Yeah. And uh, as he goes out, he announces uh, to the people that he will be kind of petitioning the Pope uh, to have Beckett formally recognized as a saint. Mm-hmm. And um, the canonization in those days happened a lot quicker than it does these days. Yeah, it often happens relatively quickly. And also, I will say it is often, you know, choices are made of that are often somewhat political about mm-hmm. which people get canonized, how quickly <laughs> they get canonized. Yeah. And, yeah, and as we'll see, Beckett did, in fact, get canonized relatively speedily. Mm-hmm. At this point, we'll be moving on to our next segment, the Vera et Falso, or True and False section. Mm-hmm where we talk about what this movie got right and what it got wrong. And 
unfortunately, there are, I will say, a decent amount of things that it didn't quite get right. Okay. So the issue with the Saxons. Mm -hmm. First of all, of course, as we mentioned, Thomas Beckett is not, in fact, Saxon. He is Norman. Mm -hmm. Second, the emphasis on this, I guess I would say, ethnic conflict as being really at the center of English politics and of the relationship between Beckett and Henry and Beckett's own conflict about his relationship with Henry and his status... All that feels a bit anachronistic to me and feels very much like something that's coming out of uh, later conflicts between the English and various other people, obviously mm -hmm. the Irish included, mm -hmm. obviously the Welsh, who I'll talk about in more detail in a few minutes as well. Yeah, the Scots. Yeah, the Scots. Mm -hmm. all, all sorts of people being oppressed by the English. <sighs> We're a bunch of belligerent assholes sometimes. <laughs> that's... That's been inherited by the side of the Atlantic. <laughs> because at this point, there there certainly were clear distinctions, I would say, between the Saxons and the Normans. You would know who was Saxon and who was Norman. Yeah. A big part of this is a language that the Normans, for the most part, still basically all just spoke French. Mm -hmm. And the Saxons still, at this point, are mostly speaking what is basically Old English, which is a Germanic language and sounds very different from either English today or from the old French that the Normans would have been speaking. Yeah. And the other big difference is, of course, one of class, that at this point, really the entire nobility and also a lot of the kind of nascent bourgeoisie are Normans, uh, Jewish moneylenders also, who, you know, peasants are sometimes in a kind of position of conflict with, are also typically Norman French. Okay. And the Saxons are largely peasants. Mm-hmm. And so there is a kind of, there is a way in which the Saxons are indeed oppressed because they are mostly peasants and they always, they're always oppressed. Right, okay. <laughs> but there's not really any reason to think that for most Saxon peasants by a full century after the Norman conquest, mm -hmm. that they really see their Norman lords as being that much different or that much worse than their previous Anglo-Saxon lords who almost certainly also oppressed them. Right. Uh, yeah, because popularly in England or in the UK, William the Conqueror is known as like a campaigning king and uh, right. conquered uh, England quite brutally. But it was, I think it was harder for nobles than it was necessarily for the peasantry. And the redistribution of land was just obviously always sideways, not downwards or anything like that. So yes. he got a pretty hard reputation from people that can read and write. But I expect for the common people, new boss is same as the old boss. Right, exactly. So it doesn't really make that much of a difference, especially a century after when you no longer have that direct memory of mm -hmm. being conquered and being subjected to a war. Mm -hmm. So does it really matter? Nah. The other issues that I noticed in particular have to do with the portrayal of Henry's family. So first, he seems to really hate and resent his mother, uh, Matilda, who, first of all, is quite an interesting figure in her own right. She essentially was denied the English crown because she was a woman, despite being the only living child of her father, who was King Henry I. Yes. And so then a cousin of some sort, uh, Stephen, ended up taking the throne. And thanks really to Matilda continuing to campaign on behalf eventually of her son, we ended up with Henry taking the throne instead of having a lot of King Eustace's, which is uh, <laughs> the name of Stephen's son who lives okay. there. <laughs> right. So he also then spends all this time complaining about how much he hates her and how little he owes her, which 
A is incorrect and B does not in fact seem to be based on what we know how Henry saw or related to his mother that he in fact seems to have quite respected her. Well, you would have, you know, a formidable person like that, you would have had to. Oh, yes, absolutely. Even grudgingly. Yes. And I would say grudging respect might in fact be how in reality I would describe his relationship with his wife. Oh, okay. (laughs) Especially at this point. So they had a tumultuous and complicated marriage. And this is certainly a moment at which their marriage is seeing some rather significant strain which does make Eleanor's snarkiness seem about right. But I would say the real Henry would have respected her more. He just also would have been quite wary of her in a lot of ways. And as he should have been because she supported his sons in rebellion against him. Yes. And was uh, quite a thorn in his side to the extent that he had her imprisoned for about the last 20 years of his reign. Right. Yeah. That in itself sounds quite a lot like I, Claudius. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) These soap opera English families are soap opera (laughs) pre-modern families. Totally. She also, just to note, she cries out that she's going to complain to her father, which, A, it just annoyed me because she is a, you know, fairly independent figure who has a lot of power in her own right and is perfectly capable of raising an army basically by herself. Mm-hmm. And also, her father is dead. He died in 1137, so about 30 oh. years. Okay, all right. Well, she's uh, forgetting that for a second. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in, in her grief, she has forgotten about her father's long-ago death. Right. <laughs> a couple of other issues, the uh, language here. So, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned before, Henry being Norman largely would have spoken French, Mm-hmm. The film, however, presents the French woman that Henry is speaking with as speaking a foreign language. And mm-hmm. he's like, look, she's so French. And, you know, and she speaks French and she has this like faux, you know, cartoonish faux French accent. Yes, this is very 60s. This is very kind of oh, Pete, yeah. Peter Sellers, Pink Panther type scene. Yes. But <laughs> yeah, it's also very definitely interested in, okay, we're going to portray the... English as being essentially English, uh, which therefore means in terms of their relationship with the French that, you know, therefore the French are different as opposed to at this point, really, basically, they're pretty much French. And the person who would be speaking a different and pretty much incomprehensible language is that Saxon peasant woman. Yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) Or for that matter, the Welsh lady. And speaking Mm -hmm. of, the film makes it sound like all of Wales is under English rule at this point. There are parts of Wales that are because, in fact, going back to William the Conqueror, that he basically tried to conquer Wales, but he didn't quite succeed. Mm -hmm. So there are bits in the kind of south and east of Wales that are under the control of Norman or Anglo-Norman lords. Yes. But most of Wales is still under Welsh rule for basically another century. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, eventually the, the Tudors, I think, are Welsh originally. Yeah, the Tudors are of Welsh background, and it's, mm-hmm. uh, I believe it's Edward I who, among his many sins, includes uh, the <laughs> subjugation of uh, Wales as well as Scotland, and the I expulsion see. of the Jews. No one likes Edward I. Okay, yeah, I can see why he'd be uh, unpopular. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I, I, the English might like Edward I. Uh. A certain type of English might like Edward I. <laughs> right, <laughs> yes, fair enough. Okay. The ones running the country might like Edward I. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's nice to hear, though, Sean being allowed to sing in Welsh. 
Yeah. In Kumrayig. And yeah. um well, God bless her, she's still alive. She's like eighty six years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and she uh, also did I see that she was in fact dating or married to Richard Burden at this point? Oh no, she was married to Peter O'Toole for twenty years. Oh whoops. <laughs> Oh, whoops, okay, Jason, married Peter O'Toole. Yeah. And, and that's nice, because uh, he's a very pretty man, and she's a very handsome woman. Yeah. Yeah. And that's nice. 20 years isn't bad, actually, for Hollywood marriages. Yeah, quite. I mean, it ended yeah. badly, but they had kids and everything. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's nice-ish. Yeah. But yeah, so they so they were married when they made this, so. Uh, yes, they were married, yeah. There were also some things that they did end up getting right. So one of these is that, so they have this reference made to priests and bishops as having fought in the days of the Norman conquest. Now, Mm -hmm. the claim of hypocrisy might be slightly overblown, but it is in fact very much the case that that in particular, William's half-brother Odo, the Bishop of Bayou, famously did fight at the Battle of Hastings and was well known as a warrior. So clerics are not really supposed to shed blood, but... If you have a club, you're not shedding blood in the same way as with a sword. And also, if you're commanding troops, you're also technically not shedding the blood. Somebody else is shedding the blood. Okay, yeah. Not me, governor. (laughs) Not me, no. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you look at the Bayou Tapestry, which was uh, very possibly commissioned by Odo and is a, a kind of visual retelling of the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest of England, mm-hmm. it features Odo quite prominently holding a club and commanding troops. And it says uh, a tra- the translation of the Latin above his head is, you know, very in a very rough translation, it's something like Odo eggs on the boys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So there is that pass yeah that they yeah, are he's, referring he's there back for to. Uh, moral support oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course you know going back to what i mentioned before about the investiture controversy yeah there are plenty of bishops that and uh, the pope that maintain at various points armed men so yeah that claim that they can't is likely the kind of claim that they might make if they didn't want to but is mm-hmm. potentially a bit disingenuous yeah sure i mean i'm i'm not um qualified in this area of history, but I read a bunch and I read one book, which was really fascinating called, I think Hawkswood or Mm -hmm. Hawksmoor. And John Hawkswood was um, an English mercenary in Italy around this time, just running rampant, absolute maniac being hired by everyone left and right to lead armies. And he's buried in the Duomo in Florence. Oh. Yeah. uh, It's a really good book. I'd recommend it. But uh, Hawksmoor is the architect. And I think Hawkswood was the medieval mercenary. Oh, cool. Yeah, really interesting. I'll check that out. Yeah. Another thing that the movie at least sort of got right is forks. So (laughs) Beckett is presented as kind of introducing the fork to England and uh, does indeed uh, also highlight the fact that this is a kind of new thing from Florence. And Mm -hmm. indeed, forks are in this period not yet in common usage in England and do ultimately spread to Western Europe from the Italian peninsula, who basically got them from the Eastern Roman Empire, what we call the Byzantine Empire, usually. Yeah. They're, they're the big fork users, and potentially, I some believe, I think, the inventor of the fork. Okay. So in Northern Europe, people wouldn't have quite been big on the fork in this period, and it wasn't heavily adopted until quite a bit later. I think in England, it was like not until about the 18th century. Right. Because I read, um, I just did the Wikipedia thing, and uh, the first mention of them in English is from an English book, and it refers to forks as an unmanly affectation. 
Yes. So they would not necessarily, they certainly would not have been popular in this period in England, but it's mm-hmm. not entirely outside the realm of possibility, at least, that some, you know, mm-hmm. fancy English nobles here and there <laughs> might have attempted to uh, bring forks in and just not, they didn't quite catch on. Oh, did we skip the food fight? Oh, yes, we did. That the, uh, the christening of the forks did not ultimately go well, as people think that it's a new weapon, basically. <laughs> Right, yeah. And nice I'm not entirely see. wrong. As some, I think they end up like somebody gets like stabbed in the ass with a fork. <laughs> um, I saw that scene and I wonder, is that what Medieval Times is like? In Medieval Times, they don't have forks, so. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no food fighting. No, they. Uh, I think the food fight would be not what they would ultimately want because the poor people who work there would have to clean it up every night. <laughs> okay. And they already have to clean up, like, the horse poop because there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of horses running back and forth. Fair dues. Uh, straw camels back. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, basically there's a, a kind of big thing. But they actually do make a big point at medieval times that you do not get forks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. The other thing I will say that overall, the movie does get a lot of the basic outlines of the story, right? That Henry had Beckett named as archbishop on the assumption that Beckett would then support him and basically deal with his big problem with the church. But their relationship then devolved into a hostile conflict after Beckett in the end took his office seriously. And there's in fact, I would say quite a bit of debate among scholars about whether this is essentially just opportunism and a way to be powerful in a different way on Beckett's part, whether he actually had an experience of genuine religious conversion that led him to make this change in his life and behave in this particular way. Mm. And genuinely, to some extent, we don't know if he was serious or opportunistic. Yeah, making it or faking it. Yeah, and I think this movie does a kind of, you know, this movie obviously takes the side ultimately that this is a genuine decision on -hmm. his part, but simultaneously also doesn't spend that much time invested in thinking about his relationship with God. No, it kind of happens uh, quickly and almost inexplicably, but then Burton is at his best when he's being super intense and serious. So he totally sells it. Yes. Mm -hmm. The line, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest, is the most commonly cited version of what it is that Henry said. It is, however, one that I can't remember exactly what the orig- what the first origin of it, but it is not the one that is seen in the most close to contemporary accounts. Mm. And in the earliest accounts, uh, the line that Henry delivers that inspires his knights to rid him of the meddlesome priest is, What miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a lowborn cleric? Mm. And uh, ever since then, British leaders have been very careful about what they say and what they incite. Oh, yes. You can, you can see that just constantly. In, yeah, in yeah. They're very good at it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I grew up, by the way, it was turbulent priest we were taught. There's, yeah, there's turbulent and troublesome and meddlesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you hear all of those variants. And uh, yeah, and that whole articulation of it does yeah. uh, get kind of developed quite a bit earlier. It's like alternative. It's like alternative seven dwarfs. Right. <laughs> um, is will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Is that the medieval version of let him die? Oh, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Henry just kind of said hashtag let him die on Twitter, and then it worked out. Then it worked out for him. Will no one rid me of this turbulent dude? 
Actually, I will say, I will say I can almost kind of see our, the current United States president basically doing an equivalent of this, so. Right, sure. Well, he's always inciting. I mean, not to get too No, far, exactly. He's an inciter for sure. Um, oh, actually, yeah. there was a scene uh, where I think some constables come to arrest Beckett, mm-hmm. and his just contempt for them and rejection of them, I just thought immediately, unfortunately, you can't avoid it these days, I just thought Trump-like. He just like says basically, you can't do anything. I'm above your authority. You don't have the right, and I'm walking away. And uh, that's what your current president does every day. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. We'll see how long that lasts. Hopefully, not another four years. (laughs) We will see. Right. And uh, of course, finally, Henry did in fact do a quite public penance and had himself beaten with rods by some clerics at the tomb of Thomas Beckett. Mm-hmm. What I will say, however, is that the context of this gets a bit lost in the film because the film really just emphasizes it as kind of following upon the death of Beckett. It obviously indicates this is something that perhaps Henry has to do for his image, but also presents it as in some ways a this kind of genuine expression of sorrow. Right. It's complicated in terms of the original context because this is something that he does uh, about four years after Beckett's death, Mm -hmm. so in 1174, and he does this directly in the midst of countering a rebellion led by his own sons against him. Mm -hmm. And this is very much seen as a quite calculated way to reestablish royal authority at a moment where that's basically at its lowest point because his sons are rebelling against him. So how much respect can you have for this person who can't even keep his own sons and for that matter, wife in line? Right. Okay. Yeah. And then he also kind of presents this idea of uh, perhaps this rebellion is a punishment for my sins, including, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't quite take credit for the murder of Beckett, but uh, he takes the whips for it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a successful piece of propaganda if, if, if that's it, because, you know, we still think of him as, as this figure doing it, for the right reasons, to be honest. You don't hear the extenuating circumstances in history class in Catholic school, that's for sure. Oh, really? You do not, <laughs> yeah, you do not talk about that then. <laughs> no, no, no. Just like Henry VIII, most evil man ever, move on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's an argument for that from a feminist perspective as well as a Catholic one, so... <laughs> yeah, 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 I can see that. But uh, they're, they're kind of not seeing the forest for the trees in his case. Right. <laughs> oh, very true. <laughs> so Henry VIII and Henry II will both come up in our next section, which is Historia at Veritas, where we talk about a real person, event, or phenomenon related to the film. And because I think ultimately the film does a fairly good job of highlighting a lot of the important elements of Beckett's story during his life, I wanted to particularly emphasize Beckett and his legacy after his death and the cult of St. Thomas Beckett. Mm. So first of all, the accounts of Beckett's death very much emphasized his martyrdom. So the same account that has uh, that line that I read, the uh, original version of Henry's uh, uh, suggestion that Beckett Mm -hmm. be gotten rid of, describes it as follows. The wicked knight leapt suddenly upon him, cutting off the top of the crown which the unction of sacred chrism had dedicated to God. Next he received a second blow on the head, but still he stood firm and immovable. At the third blow he fell on his knees and elbows, offering himself a living sacrifice, and saying in a low voice, For the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. 
but the third knight inflicted a terrible wound as he lay prostrate. By this stroke, the crown of his head was separated from the head in such a way that the blood white with the brain, and the brain no less red from the blood, dyed the floor of the cathedral. The same clerk who had entered with the knights placed his foot on the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr, and horrible to relate, scattered the brains and blood about the pavements, crying to the others, let us away, knights, this fellow will arise no more. Indeed, he won't. No, it's going to be difficult to recover from that, to be honest. I mean, unless you're Rasputin. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a pretty pretty gory account. Yeah, you can see why uh, boys love learning about this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's grim. It's grim. It's got to be the highlight of your Catholic education. Right, totally. Yeah, for all the wrong reasons. And um, (laughs) it's funny, in the movie, they use that word chrism. And I thought Mm -hmm. to myself, I literally haven't heard that word in decades or thought about it or anything. (laughs) But that's definitely a word that chimes in my head. Incredible. Right, bringing bringing back the Catholic vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Which, of course, is all stuff that I distinctly remember having to learn as a medieval historian because I'm right. Jewish and grew up with a fairly traditional Jewish education, which did yeah. not include learning words like chrism. No. <laughs> okay. All right. Beckett is very quickly recognized as a martyr. To further highlight this, a number of accounts claim that at his death he was wearing a hair shirt which is a kind of big penance thing that people would do. It was kind of quite uncomfortable. It was scratchy. You would kind of wear it all the time and never take it off. And it would even maybe kind of make your, make you start kind of bleeding and it was actually pretty gross. I think unless I'm getting mixed up, you can use to wear a hair shirt as a kind of metaphor. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of making yourself this kind of penitential martyr-esque figure. Yeah. Yeah. And so that definitely also emphasized for a lot of people at the time, at least, that this is something that is quite genuine in terms of his, you know, in terms of his religious conversion, which helps him get basically fast tracked as a saint. So he dies in 1170 and then gets canonized in 1173. And today there's also a pretty long waiting period, often believed between being uh, beatified and being canonized, Mm -hmm. the two kind of stages of becoming a saint. Yes. But... At this, but he is actually, it's all on the same day. It's like, we're just going to move forward with this real fast now. Well, yeah, in the movie, it says he, he's ordained as a priest and becomes Archbishop of Canterbury the next day. Right, and that, I believe, is true for Beckett and was yeah. unfortunately not not entirely uncommon. It didn't often happen yeah. with a figure as illustrious as the Archbishop of Canterbury, but mm-hmm. it's relatively common that somebody would decide that so-and-so's like 14-year-old cousin is actually a great candidate to be the bishop. <laughs> And that, therefore, you need to kind of fast-track him through religious orders right. so that he can move along and okay. be bishop now. A knight at the monastery, a knight in the vicarage, and then, okay, the big job. Straight on up. Yeah. <laughs> he is quickly canonized, and Canterbury very quickly becomes a major pilgrimage site, and Beckett as the focus of quite a bit of uh, devotion. There are dozens of reliquaries depicting his life and death that survive from the Middle Ages. So in particular... Uh, there's a city called Limoges, which is very known for producing these uh, kind of cas- kind of reliquary caskets that are often in blue and green and gold. Oh, if cool. you've been to certain kinds of exhibits, you've probably seen them. Mm-hmm. I've certainly seen a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something like 40 of them that depict uh, the scenes from the life and in particular death of Thomas Beckett. Right. And especially, you know, his death is a good one to depict if you want to do some religious art, because that image of him literally being killed at the altar while celebrating mass is very dramatic. 
Yeah, yeah, by an earthly king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and by these, and you know, by these, you know, these kind of four knights kind of gathered around him, mm-hmm. and it really emphasizes, you know, Kim as this saintly martyr. Yes. Canterbury becomes one of the biggest pilgrimage sites in Europe, I would say probably within Europe itself, probably basically third after Rome and Santiago de Compostela in mm. what is now Spain. Yes. And uh, certainly the by far the biggest of England, and of course Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, uh, centers on a pilgrimage to Becket's Shrine at Canterbury. That That's why these people are all in the same place and talking to each other is because they're en route to Canterbury. Right. And um, when you were in town, did do they still have the Canterbury Tales exhibition yes. or attraction? Did you go? <laughs> yeah. It's got all the little animatronic figures and like the guy kissing the lady's ass and stuff like that. So it actually, they still have it, but it actually, and I actually went to it the very first time I was in Canterbury, which was about like 10 years ago or something like okay. that. Uh, this actually, I did a trip to England with my family, which is what basically turned me into a medieval historian that I had always kind of liked history, but I'd never done any European history. So I started reading mostly this kind of stuff about the English monarchs just for fun and saw this movie and then went to, went to England. And so it found it so exciting to actually see these things. Yeah. And that just kind of got me hooked. And that's how I ended up becoming a medievalist. And we did go to Canterbury on that trip. Oh, cool. I believe it's still around, but the attraction was not open on my most recent visit to Canterbury because a lot of things were closed because it was an odd time of year. I was there on December 29th, Uh which as it turns out, and as we, I was there with my parents and we realized as we were en route there on the train, realized that we were actually heading there on Beckett's feast day and the day of his, in the anniversary of his death. Oh, no way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Which was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, well, that's a super holy time of year as well, and they decided to kill him. Right, yeah, because that actually really kind of highlights that. It's like, whoa, Beckett four days after Christmas? (laughs) You should have thought, like, was it during, like, which actually then, I hadn't looked at this, which actually then makes me wonder, given things like travel time, is it like at Christmas that Henry starts starts basically encouraging people to murder this dude? off. All right. (laughs) Right, you know, Christmas lunch is always always long and boozy. Uh, that actually was true in the Middle Ages, that Christmas lunch right. could get pretty long and boozy. So. Yeah, 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 it's certainly true in my family. <laughs> <laughs> A tradition that goes back centuries. <laughs> right. I don't, know about inc- I don't know about inciting murder during Christmas lunch, but yeah, continue. <laughs> but I was really surprised that there was, like, nobody there. Right. Like, that there was nobody there for It's Beckett's Feast Day. Oh, I see what you mean. I thought in the movie... Okay, yeah. So the cathedral was closed? No, the cathedral was open. It was just, and you know, and there was, you know, the cathedral was open and there were, you know, a couple of people who worked there here and there and Uh a few tourists and perhaps a few worshippers here and there. But I was actually kind of expecting that it might be crowded. Right. Because it was this anniversary and uh, it was not at all. So if I don't know if they do any kind of big uh, anniversary celebration yeah that, that sounds uh, that sounds uh, a bit too continental to me yeah yeah so maybe <laughs> maybe it's that uh, <laughs> right. i will admit uh because you know at this point canterbury isn't it's an anglican cathedral at this point right yeah 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 and i will confess that i have some amount of as a medievalist and as a jew i have some amount of basically i kind of lose track of exactly what christianity started doing basically right after the protestant reformation Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. So I definitely have some amount. So in in my head, Christianity is very much Catholicism. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there it is. My expectations. I think that's the biggest sect, maybe. Yeah. I could be wrong. My mother, who's more religious than me, whenever we walk into a medieval cathedral, and they're all Anglican now, Mm -hmm. uh, she always whispers in my ear, once this was all ours. (laughs) 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 She's joking. She's joking. Uh, But she's also telling the truth. (laughs) She she is not technically historically wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we did a better job of decorating. That is definitely true. (laughs) And relatedly, the other problem decoration-wise is that the Reformation in England involved a lot of destroying all of those nice Catholic decorations, Uh which, as a medievalist, I'm super sad about. And yeah. among those included Beckett's tomb. So he got a like very big, nice, fancy tomb that was built for him on the 50th anniversary of his death in 1220 right. at this, you know, increasingly major pilgrimage site. And Henry VIII in 1536, as uh, you know, he's introducing his reformation. Mm-hmm. And also I would say at this point is perhaps especially angry at men named Thomas who defy the king <laughs> because of their support of the church. Yeah. Looking at you, Thomas More. Yeah. And he has Thomas he has Thomas Beckett's shrine at Canterbury completely destroyed. Oh damn. It's like Alexander yeah. the Great's tomb. Yeah. So now there's like a candle in the middle of the floor. Yeah. And that's basically it because I think they don't want to rebuild a kind of shrine per se. Right, yeah. You have to have something. Uh, I can see the attraction of being minimalist about it, but, you know, it's always nice to see these splendid tombs. Right. I, I'm kind of glad that at least they did that as opposed to building some really ugly, say, I don't know, that they, mm-hmm. like, I'm really relieved they didn't do, like, an ugly new version in, like, the Baroque period. Right, yeah. <laughs> something to be grateful for. Yeah, but it is definitely quite a loss from an art historical perspective that yeah. this tomb was wrecked. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, in terms of the subsequent legacy of Thomas Beckett, and perhaps in particular related to ideas of Englishness, and you can perhaps actually shed some light on this, cool. in 2006, the BBC History magazine organized a poll where they decided to identify who's the worst Briton of the last millennium. Okay. And they had nominees selected. I think they actually did find historians to select nominees for each century. Right. And the nominee for the 12th century was Thomas Beckett, I think on the grounds that he was presented as being a kind of hypocritical opportunist. Oh, wow. Okay. And then they kind of did voting on of the people, the representatives from each century, you know, yeah. who's the worst. Yeah. The person who came in first was mm. our, I guess, 19th century representative, Jack the Ripper. Right. Beckett <laughs> came in second. What? Only to Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and, some have, and some have pointed out that since we do not, in fact, know Jack the Ripper's identity, and there are those who have suggested he's not really an Englishman. Right. That Thomas Beckett could be, have someone who was, has been voted the worst <laughs> Englishman in history. <laughs> I don't know where people are getting this idea. I guess I lived in this Catholic, <laughs> I lived in this Catholic bubble too long where he was a noble saint and martyr and he was a wonderful person and all the rest. No, I, I, that surprises me. I honestly don't know where Beckett hate would come from. Maybe they were confused with Samuel Beckett and they didn't like his place. And <laughs> that's that's a weird choice. Surely Cromwell was up there. 
I'd have to look back at the poll. I certainly would hope Cromwell was a 17th century representative. He certainly is. Uh, he certainly is who the Irish would nominate as the worst Englishman in history. I yeah, imagine. for sure. He's like the British Stalin. Uh, on that subject, uh, I'm from a place called the Isle of Wight. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in the south. And uh, Charles I was imprisoned there in a place called Carisbrook Castle. And he Mm -hmm. tried to escape one night and got stuck in the window because he was too fat. (laughs) Poor Charles I. Yeah, and then he was taken to London to be decapitated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the only other person that I distinctly remember on the li- that made the list is the 16th century representative is a man named Richard Richard Rich, who was basically Henry VIII's personal torturer. Okay, this must have been a poll of historians or something. I think that's historians wild. nominated mm-hmm. the representative for each mo- for each century. Mm. And then regular people that but then anyone could go on the BBC website and vote. That's wild. I think uh, maybe <laughs> Maybe David Starkey nominated Beckett because David Starkey's a Tory. <laughs> <laughs> a high Tory. I don't know. I, yeah, that's you know, inexplicable I, yeah. to me. Yeah, no, I found it bizarre, you know, and I'm no great fan of organized religion, honestly, but right. would far from say that Beckett is the worst man in English history. Honestly, I think Henry II might be a better candidate for that, uh, even from the 12th century. Right, you've got me thinking about it now, but that's a whole different show. On a different yes. podcast. Because you've got to think yeah. of, you know, revisionist views of Churchill and yes. Cromwell, as I mentioned. Uh, all Victorian men, I think you could nominate as the worst man. Just um, all of them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry VIII, I would put on the list personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was a piece of shit. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. Edward, Edward I, too. There's a whole selection of English kings I'd put on the list, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who do you think was the most fun? The most fun. Mm, I like Charles II myself. Charles II, I think, would be a really good guy to have a drink with. Maybe also right. Edward IV. Although, maybe not if you are a woman. You might not want to have a drink with <laughs> But he, he could be fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And his wife introduced tea. Yeah. Yeah, wild. If, if, we go, uh, if we're not just talking about men, then uh, mm-hmm. Eleanor of Aquitaine is clearly the person from the figure from English history I would most like to have a drink with. <laughs> not uh, Queen Anne, as seen in The Favourite. No, El- Eleanor just... <laughs> it's more fun. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think The Favourite does go a long way to make Queen Anne look more interesting than most people have assumed. <laughs> right, yeah. She's been somewhat overlooked. Well done, The Favourite. Yeah. <laughs> Beckett uh, might have had a complicated legacy in England <laughs> subsequent to his death, but is very much, I would say, positively depicted in this film. Yeah. And that leads into the question of, uh, which is the root of our next segment, Fabula Nostra, of if you're going to come up with another movie inspired by this one, what might you do? Mm-hmm. So do you want to go first? Oh, sure. <laughs> I saw in your kind of request that I had to think about this. And the first thing my mind went to was make it a comedy. But, you know, Blackadder actually did an episode that was basically this story. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen Blackadder 1, but, uh, yeah, they do an episode which is basically this story, including the knights and uh, everything Uh like that. Um, So I couldn't go that direction because I was thinking of Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. But then (laughs) uh, I, I think Nick Frost would look great with the monk hairdo. But um, no, I decided that wouldn't work. So I came around to kind of a Death of Stalin, The Thick of It type thing by Armando Iannucci Mm -hmm. would be fun. 
very sweary, very fast, very anachronistic. And that way, you know, you wouldn't even need English people. You could have Steve Buscemi playing Thomas Beckett. Uh, you could have <laughs> Peter Capaldi playing Henry II. Oh. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, that could be fun to watch. My other option wouldn't really star anyone famous, but it would be a short film about the night of the killing. And I don't know, well, the incitement of the killing and the actual murder. I don't know how possible it is, but it would be a short film where everyone speaks in the English of the time. Um, right. Because this story is so well known mm-hmm. in the UK that, you know, it would be educational in the sense that you know what they're saying. You wouldn't need to understand absolutely everything, basically. And that would be interesting in terms of the back and forth because you would then potentially have, a, you know, so you'd have a number of scenes, obviously, where people would be speaking Norman French, most likely, in terms yeah. of that being the really everyday language. Mm-hmm. And then it would be interesting if you had some scenes where you kind of then kind of pass by some some of our, you know, Saxon peasants or, uh, you know, if there were kind of Saxon monks at uh, um, uh-huh. Canterbury and then you actually hear them speaking uh, Old English. Yeah, yeah. And they would have to be like Terry Jones and Michael Palin. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He must be an archbishop. He hasn't got shit all over him. (laughs) Exactly. um, Actually, I was in Canterbury because I briefly went to university but then dropped out and I was studying history. And Hmm. one of my professors told us that Holy Grail was probably the most accurate medieval movie in terms of how people thought and behaved. I think it definitely is a candidate for that. Right, because <laughs> people were absurd by our standards and kind of very timid before God and desperate to please him all the time. And, yeah. uh, well, everyone was covered in shit as well. So yeah. <laughs> he really liked uh, he really liked that movie as a representation. Yeah, yeah. But no, no, that's great. Um, <laughs> I think that would be really interesting. So I'm not sure that another movie can really do that much of a better job of telling the story of the relationship between Henry and Beckett, especially, mm-hmm. honestly. I'm not sure there's better casting for a film about the relationship between Henry and Beckett. Yeah. But I always want to see more movies about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Okay. And So I'd love a film that's focused on her and then on the decline of her relationship with Henry, which is something that's happening during the Beckett years. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it is then about three years after Beckett's death that she leads her sons in rebellion. Yeah. So I think Kate Blanchett would be a fun choice for Eleanor at the age that she would be at at about this point. Yeah, probably the best actress in the world. Yep, absolutely. And... Mm -hmm. Then it actually, I was kind of looking up dates and kind of double checking some things. And one thing that I sometimes forget about is that there's actually quite a substantial age difference between Eleanor and Henry, which does not go the direction that it usually goes. Uh, usually men are older than their wives. Eleanor is actually about a decade older than Henry. Than Henry right. And had been married for a number of years before, and had two children, in fact, prior to her marriage to Henry. Right. And so based on his, I would say, overall fairly uh, successful performance in Outlaw King, I think Chris Pine would be interesting Henry II. (laughs) 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 All right. And also, this one I was having trouble with, but in terms of Beckett as being maybe somebody who's a little bit, I don't know, maybe hard to read at some moments, kind of a difficult figure. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt could do an interesting Beckett. Yeah, he's inscrutable. 
Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. I've also suggested before, you know, this would be, I'd like to have more of a kind of emphasis on Matilda. And I think actually delving into Matilda and Eleanor's relationship at this moment would be interesting. And I was yeah. thinking of Meryl Streep for Matilda. Okay, grand. And that young Henry will, of course, feature prominently and perhaps the other boys as well. And those castings, uh, you know, let's find some young, some young British teens. One Direction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Are they too old already? <laughs> They're never too old. <laughs> and then the final piece of casting that I had in mind for this was uh, Rosamond Clifford is Henry's mistress at this point, uh-huh. who uh, you know overlaps with the Beckett period and uh, gets kind of cut out of this film. And for her, I was thinking that, you know, it's a period piece. I never want to cast Kira Knightley in period pieces, but okay. I almost feel like it has to be Kira Knightley. <laughs> Go for Kira Knightley. Yeah. I kind of hate to do it, but I feel like I have to do it. Yeah, you love to see it. <laughs> also, I kind of low-key hate Karen Knightley. And, <laughs> you know, and the figure of the mistress isn't necessarily the most likable. <laughs> okay, so some kind of backdoor sabotage there. Yeah, I mean, allegedly Eleanor poisoned her. She probably didn't. She was imprisoned when Rosamond died, so right. it would have been hard. <laughs> yeah, there's another kind of Livia analogy. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, so, yes. If, if, I, if I had my way, there'd be like five movies coming out about Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> Do you think you could, uh, you, you could ring a good serialized show out of the Plantagenets? Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. that it could be a really fantastic like HBO miniseries. Mm-hmm. And especially because you have a number of different periods where really it's, it's a soap opera. I mean, Henry the second and his, both the situation with Beckett and then his family life. Like yeah. that is a soap opera. Yeah. And you've got a uh, Richard, you've got exotic locations, Richard toddling off to the Holy land to massacre people. Right. The Crusades. Um, John definitely has some kind of family drama himself. Uh, you know, he, he divorces one wife named Isabel to marry another wife named Isabel. Right. <laughs> Confusing. And you've got a little side project, Robin Hood. There's not enough about Robin yep. Hood yet. Yeah. It'd be fun to do like a Plantagenets and then there's like a like five second like, ugh, there's this annoying guy and, you know, out, out, out of Nottingham, this, you know, that they keep complaining about. They call him Robin Hood. Ugh, I don't know yeah. who cares. Actually, <laughs> apart from uh, John Hurt's Caligula, uh, Peter O'Toole did somewhat bring to mind um, Alan Rickman's Magnificent Sheriff of Nottingham. Yes, it's yeah. you've really got to love some of these actors who clearly just enjoy a lot of their life <laughs> in such a delightful way. Yeah, yeah. Being a bastard on screen is my thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with that, uh, we'll start to wind up. Uh, and uh, next, we're going to do our ratings. So our estimatio section. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to go first in terms of sharing your just one to five rating of this movie based on any criteria you would like? Okay, I thought about the criteria. <laughs> and the most apt to me seemed to be piercing blue eyes. So that's a five. (laughs) (laughs) This movie gets four piercing blue eyes out of five. Two of them (laughs) are Peter O'Toole's and the other two are Richard Burton's. I checked and they appear to be blue. Very blue. Very piercing. (laughs) I've actually been struggling about this. I was thinking it's a four in part because it's just such a good movie, in fact. 
And because I think it does do a really good job of telling this story in a dramatic and exciting way. Mm-hmm. The reason for me it's definitely not a five is a lot because of the gender things and because there are a number of uh, striking inaccuracies that I talked about that, you know, did I, that did I find kind of distracting at a couple of points. Right. But I think ultimately it does, I think it does ultimately still deserve a four. So yeah. I, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to stick with my initial thought of giving this a four out of five, a four, four piercing blue eyes. <laughs> I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't really justify my rating because I've raved about this movie <laughs> the whole time. It was amazing to see like these two guys were at the peak of their powers at this point in the early sixties. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know if Richard Burton was already married to Elizabeth Taylor, but they were super famous, super capable and just really magnetic on screen. So there are scenes where I find myself checking my phone because it's a play and it's being filmed mm-hmm. and there's lots of interiors and they look the same. But uh, because it's these two guys doing their absolute best, it overcomes the problems of gender and the problems of slight boredom setting in in the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that as a movie that's really about this story and the relationship between the two of them, I think it really is just so, so fantastic. I really couldn't think of a better version of that. And uh, for me, in terms of gender, definitely the things that, you know, were distracting to me ultimately were the kind of casual sexual assault Mm -hmm. that we have a lot of in the beginning. And yeah. as well, the uh, the kind of amount of, I would say, the movie ultimately doesn't seem to, I think, have enough, res- have as much respect for these uh, really quite impressive women, Matilda and Eleanor, as I think a film that is set in this moment should. So, okay. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. I agree. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Are there places where our listeners could find you on the internet? Oh, I guess Instagram. I use Instagram. I'm muito ben. Okay, that's a stupid Portuguese pun because I live in Portugal. Uh, M-U-I-T-O underscore Ben. And I take pictures of the beautiful place where I live. And I make stupid jokes. And I take horrible selfies. Um, So if you're desperate to see that kind of uh, gripping content, uh, feel free to add me. Yeah, so please follow you on Instagram. And if you have enjoyed this podcast... Please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I will also read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please follow us on Twitter at MediaEvilPod, that's M-E-D-I-A-E-V-A-L-P-O-D, and join our Facebook group. And you can also send me an email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ipdecker. Thanks for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.